Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can log on to it. You can actually have it come to an electronic device, send it to a friend every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday without fail. There's a new message of encouragement. Very brief and uh, biblical message for that. And now open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1, 57 to 80. We're looking at the birth of John the Baptist. And under that heading, we'll see the birth of the forerunner and the birth of the foretelling. Two things happening here today. The birth of the forerunner and the birth of the foretelling. John 1, 57 to 80. You'll notice that we are, we're going slow as we're launching this study. There's a lot of really good information, a lot of deep information here at the beginning of Luke. He provides for us a narrative that we can only find in Luke. These two birth narratives, the visitation of Gabriel the angel... These two supernatural conceptions, Elizabeth, who was too old to conceive, and Mary, who was a virgin. And now we have the first birth, which is John, and then we'll get to Jesus' birth shortly. But before that, we're going to look at another one of these original four Christmas carols. Remember we talked about that? There were four original Christmas carols that came out of the Scriptures. And last week, we looked at Mary's, and it's called the Magnificat. They have Latin phrases which are rooted in the Latin phrasing of the first line of each one of these songs. Mary opens hers, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And the Latin magnificat is is her song. Here, uh, you'll see how it opens with bless, blessed be God. And this is Zachariah's benedictus. These are beautiful. And I talked to you a little bit last week about it. That the first three, we'll see the angelic one in chapter 2, glory to God in the highest. We'll, we'll look at that one. And I, I told you I'd had a conversation with Brock, and the Stetson Choir sings them each year. Uh, they've sung the first three. They haven't sung the final one, Simeon's yet, the Nook Demitis, but they have sung the first three, and it's beautiful to hear it. So when we go through that, keep that in mind. This is a song in Scripture that's not rooted in the Psalms. It's its own individual song, and we call them the first four Christmas canticles, the first four Christmas carols. So we'll look at that. But first we'll see John as the birth of the forerunner. Let's take a look at the passage, 57 to 80, chapter 1. Here now, the word of God. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, he, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered, wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father 
Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of the salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. May God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. You've drawn us all here to your house to hear the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than Jesus. Make it a word of salvation, Lord, whether here in this sanctuary or by way of the internet as we live stream. Raise those who are unsaved from death to life. Give the gift of repentance and faith. And for those, Lord, in the midst of storm winds right now that are blowing, Make it a word of comfort and peace, and for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, a word of rest, all things to all people that some might be saved. So come, now fount of every blessing, unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Birth of John the Baptist under these two headings, number one, the birth of the forerunner, and number two, the birth of the foretelling. Once rendered mute... Zacharias, because of doubt and unbelief, he now speaks this beautiful song, this Benedictus. It's a beautiful, beautiful song, and we'll unpack it, and we'll walk through it very slowly. But first, we'll take a look at the birth of John, two great births now that we're going to look at. We've seen the promise, the supernatural conceptions where God had to intervene in two completely different sets of circumstances. One... Uh, The woman, Elizabeth, was too old to conceive, so God supernaturally intervenes, but that conception takes place through the interaction of her and her husband, Zechariah. Mary is a virgin, and, and that will not involve a man. That will just simply be the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary, but two supernatural conceptions for these two very, very special children. This now is the beginning of the fulfillment of really so much of the Old Testament promises. You have opportunities to speak to your Jewish friends, and and many are concerned about Christianity being a brand new religion and a new faith. You take them to chapter 1 of Luke. You take them to the Magnificat. You take them to the Benedictus. And all you find in there is one Old Testament passage after another. Zechariah speaks no new inspiration today. He speaks the word of God that had already been established in the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the bridge, if you will, from the Old Testament to the New. This is the link that shows God's continuing, unfolding plan of redemption. One plan from beginning to end. Not two peoples, one people. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One word to one world. And this passage shows it beautifully. And this is one of the places that I like to go when speaking to a Jewish friend. In in 
talking to them about this faith that we believe as a fulfillment of what they hold precious, Torah, the Hebrew Bible. This is God's unfolding plan now coming to fruition. Okay? Let's take a look at the birth of the forerunner. Luke 1, 57 to 60. Just look at how straightforward, no fanfare, just a straightforward narrative of the birth. When it was time, nine months, right, a normal time of, of conception. When it was time, Elizabeth, uh, to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard of the Lord's great mercy, and they shared her joy. They knew she couldn't conceive. She was too old. And remember, that was a great stigma back in that time, in, in the ancient days, to be barren. It was a great stigma, as if God had cursed you. So this was a time of great joy, a time of great celebration for this old woman who could not conceive, who had prayed. Remember the difference between the two childs. John the Baptist is a child of, 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 of prayer. They prayed and they prayed and God answered their prayer. Jesus is a child of promise. It's a totally different perspective of these two. But here's a woman who couldn't give birth. And it was a horrible stigma back in that day. It wasn't true, but it was a stigma back in that day. And here she now has this great joy. And her relatives come and, and, and they all share in her joy. And on the eighth day because they were under the law on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And we'll look at that in a moment. And they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, not uncommon to do. It wasn't super popular then. It got more popular later in the uh, ancient culture, but wasn't uncommon. Uh, but his mother spoke up and said, no, his name is to be called John. And, and later, Zechariah confirms that. And we know that because of the angel, the angel who came and spoke to Zechariah in the temple, while he was giving his two weeks of service in the temple, and then he goes back home, and he can't speak to his wife, so he has to write on tablets. He's been judged. He can't speak. He can't hear. He's, he's, he's been cursed for that period of time, and he writes on the tablet that all that had happened, and he writes on the tablet that this has been prophesied, that his name will be John. So take a look just at the Greek rendition of the Hebrew word for, for John. Jehohenan is the Greek uh, rendition of the Hebrew, Jehohenan, which simply means God is gracious. There's, there's, there's a lot of depth in understanding names, certainly back in that day. Not so much today. Some cultures today it still matters, but back then names really mattered. So here's a name that God is gracious, and he surely was. Remember, for 400 years, God is silent. We're in the intertestamental period. From the last book of the Old Testament to the first word of the New is 400 years of silence. There are no miracles that we have recorded that we know of. There's no revelation. So we have this silence for all of these years, and then all of a sudden, God speaks. God speaks, and he speaks revelation. And he speaks into what? The continuing plan, the unfolding plan of his redemption. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament, God's unfolding plan. Week after week, month after month, year after year after year, the unfolding plan. So here now, God is gracious because now the time has finally come. Remember in Galatians, I believe it's chapter 4, in the fullness of time, now is that fullness of time. But first, before Jesus would be the forerunner. Here's the forerunner. Genesis 17, 12, just to touch on this, we won't, we won't go deep. We've talked about this before. We talk about it during baptism when we baptize our babies here. For the generations to come, every male among you is, who is eight days old must be circumcised. That was part of the covenant. 
that, Ab- that God makes with Abraham. And it's a sign and a seal of the covenant. So God says, for all of the males, on the eighth day, you will circumcise them. What does that really mean? It was, it was a sign and a seal. It was, it was a statement that was being made by the Jewish people that this child was set apart, if you will, for God. They were cut off. There was a cutting off of, of, of the child, and that cutting off was to represent them being called out. Now, there's much more to go into understanding circumcision, but not for this sermon. So just know that this child is born under the law. You'll see that Jesus, also born under the law, has come to fulfill the law. So in the fulfillment of the law, John is taken on the eighth day, and and he is circumcised under that promise that is given to Abraham. Moving on to verse 76, Zechariah. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before... So he knows the time has come. You will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So to put that all back in its context, Zechariah gets the word from from Gabriel in the temple. He goes home. He shares it with his wife. She's six months pregnant. He doesn't know when Messiah is going to come, but he knows he has to come at some point. His baby's the forerunner. He doesn't know the time frame. But in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary shows up. And John leaps in Elizabeth's womb and confirms that Mary has conceived. The, the Christ child, the Messiah, is in her womb. So Zechariah knows that the, the time has, has come. We're only a, a few months apart where John will be born and, and the Messiah will be born. And how long, he doesn't know before the ministries begin. We know it's about 30 years. We don't hear much about them. We don't hear any more about John. And we don't hear much about Jesus. But 30 years goes by and then the ministries take off. And then finally, Isaiah 43. Let's take a look here at Isaiah 43, which is giving us the the prophetic pointer to this birth as the fulfillment. Isaiah 43, a voice of one crying out, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. And what did John, when you think about it, what did John come to preach? You know his ministry, right? We don't hear a lot about it today in the church of Jesus Christ. We don't hear a lot about repentance. But that was the ministry that John came to preach, and that ministry should still be preached today. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? We we repent because we're sinners in need of a Savior. And John preached that. He had a very powerful message. Jesus preached the same message. He preached the message of repentance, God has now come in the fullness of time, and we are, we are called by God to repent. You remember John's language, you brood of vipers. And what did it cost John to be the forerunner of Jesus? It cost him his life, took his head. But he preached what God had given him to preach. He preached the whole counsel of God. Listen, John the Baptist, unlike many today, he was not a preacher to felt needs. He didn't care how they felt. He preached to true needs. He said, let me tell you what you need. You need the forgiveness of your sins because you're on the way to hell. You need to repent of your sins. He preached the whole counsel of God, and often we forget that today. That, listen, you you can't have good news without bad news. The bad news has got to come first. And, And they have to know the bad news. They have to know what's happened. Our story tells us that. I mean, that was one of Dr. Kennedy's great lines. You've got to get them lost before you get them saved. You've got to let them know what the truth is. So John preaches that, and, and Jesus preaches that. Just know that in this circumcision, 
It's a, it's a sign and a seal. It's a picture. The physical circumcision is, is the picture that hopefully points to the spiritual circumcision. And you'll see later. It's the circumcision of the heart. That's, that's the key. When we baptize the babies here and we baptize them, it's a sign and a seal of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham and to his seed. This is a promise. And we hope this as an outward sign reflects an actual inward condition of a heart that's being what? Baptized. Baptized. Cleansed. The water of baptism. So that's the picture of that. So that's John. That's John. That's the birth. It's a very straightforward narrative. There's no embellishment. There's nothing else to add. The forerunner has been born. And then he disappears. And 30 years later, he comes back on the scene. And we'll get back to him later in our study. Now let's take a look at the birth of the foretelling. The birth of the foretelling. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. I'm going to show you that very briefly. But let's take a look at the passage. Let's walk through it. As we do, when we get to verse 68, let's start there. Notice that in 67, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's prophesying now. Zechariah is filled with the Spirit. And know that the Spirit of prophecy calls things that are not as though they are. You understand how powerful that is? You're going to see the past tense. Mary does it in the Magnificat. Mary speaks when she's speaking about the promises of God. She speaks in the past tense. The Spirit of prophecy speaks about those things that are not as if they are. Why? They're speaking God's promise. And God's promise is as good as fulfilled. God is not like man that he should lie and break a promise and and turn aside. So when you see this, it, it should comfort you. It should strengthen you. Why? Think of the promises that God has given to you. Think of all of the promises that are there. Promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise that he who began a good work will complete it. The promise that all things work together for the good of those who are the called. We could go on and on and on and on. Those are comforting to those who understand that God fulfills his promises. God doesn't break those promises. So we'll see them. And, and we should be thinking of those things as good as being done in our own lives. We should speak of things that are not as if they are because of the one who has spoken them to us. Okay, Let's look briefly. Praise be to the Lord God. There's the Benedictus. Praise, blessed, blessed be God, blessed be God, the Lord God of Israel, because he has come. Notice the past tense. He has visited. He has come. Uh, Zechariah knows he's, he's here. He's, he's, he's as good as come. And notice there's generally two visitations in Scripture. And, and John, John, in his ministry of preaching, makes it clear. There's two visitations from God in Scripture. One is judgment. The other is mercy. Very simple. And that's clear. We need to be reminded of that today. Today, for all those who are hearing today, here or by way of the Internet, all those who are hearing today are hearing the gospel being preached. Tomorrow may not be a day of salvation. Today is. And you hear that word, and that word goes forth, and today is a day of salvation to what? Transfer your trust to Christ. He invites you into a relationship with him because he has paid the price. He has paved the way for eternal life in Christ all of God's promises are yes and amen, and we'll get to that at the end. He has, notice here, he has redeemed. This is a deep word, and we want to be brief because there's so much. There's a secular definition of the word redeemed, but we're not concerned with that. We're concerned with the biblical definition. The better word here for redeemed uh, would be ransom, because ransom paints a picture for us that if somebody, it's a, it's a picture in wartime, if, if uh, the Fighters are captured, and, and they're now held uh, captive uh, by, by, by the, the, the army that captured them. You can work out an agreement to, 
to ransom them back. That's the picture. You're, you're held captive by a, a controlling force. So this is, this is redemption. This is being ransomed, but it's, it's even deeper. Romans 5.9. Most of you will remember Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8, right? But God, in his mercy, while we were yet still sinners, died for us. But we forget verse 9. Verse 9 goes a little bit further and tells us that having now been justified by his blood, that's what, that's what Zechariah sees in redemption. He sees the blood of the promised Messiah. Having been justified in his blood, we shall now be saved from what? What does verse 9 say? We forget what it says. We'll be saved from the wrath of God. Paul in Romans writes, we're being saved from God's wrath. That's real. That's true. And Zechariah knows that. And he says he has redeemed us. He's redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, of the Messiah who is still in the womb of Mary. What a beautiful picture. What a powerful picture. That's why this Benedictus is so important for us to understand. And in Psalm 41, 13, just take a look. This is is not new revelation. This is from the Old Testament. And I could have given you more, but just one, because we don't have a lot of extra time. Praise be to the Lord. The God of Israel. So Zechariah, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is speaking Scripture that already exists. Okay? Moving on to 69 to 71. 69 to 71. Notice again the past tense. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Let's just pause for a moment on the horn. A horn. This is a symbol taken from the animal kingdom. And now you know what to picture, right? A horn on a very powerful animal, if you will. A horn would be symbolic of of power. In the animal kingdom, the horns would be used for for defending oneself, for for attack. Uh, But in this picture here, the horn of salvation is speaking of Jesus. We'll see it in a moment. This is a picture of victory. This is a picture of power. This is a picture of glory and majesty. He has raised up a horn of salvation. That's not new language. That's Old Testament language. In the house of David, there's the Davidic covenant. We'll get to that in a moment. In the house of David, as he has said through the holy prophets. This has already been spoken. There's nothing new here. That's the beautiful part of understanding your Christianity. There's nothing new. It's rooted in everything that was said in the old Jesus was promised from the beginning to be the fulfillment of all of the promises that were made. Nothing is new. Think about the the, the understanding of salvation. We all would immediately understand how Peter, James, and John were saved, but how was Abraham saved? The same way, by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. How much he knew of him, we don't know, but he trusted in God's promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the Old Testament saints were saved exactly the same as the New Testament saints and saved exactly the same as you and I. By grace, through faith, no works. One plan of salvation from the beginning. Okay? Let's take a look here at 2 Samuel 22. Here's one of the places. There's others, but I'm just giving you one address. 22nd. Passage uh, 2 and 3, the Lord is my rock. Notice the foundation upon which he's going to build this horn. The rock, the fortress, my deliverer. In him I take refuge as the horn of my salvation. Now, there's so much more we could unpack. You remember the horns on the altar in the sanctuary? The horns could be used for refuge, could it not? 
If there was a fugitive being chased by the law, they could go inside the temple, hang on to the horns and as a, as a sanctuary, really, until, until justice could be served. But primarily, we're looking at the horns. If you go to the sanctuary, you look at the horns that are on the, the, um, the ends, the four ends, the four corners of the, the ark, and we see them sprinkled in blood, which is a picture of what? Salvation. So all of this comes together. All of this fits beautifully together in the picture of the promised Messiah. He is... Listen... Zacharias perhaps is holding his little baby, little baby, eight days old. But right now he's not speaking of his little baby. He's speaking of the Messiah. He'll speak to his son in just a moment. But he's speaking of this promised one. And what is he saying? The horn of my salvation. I'm now privileged enough to see my own salvation come while I'm still here. That was Simeon's great prayer. In his nuke dimittis, his great prayer was, Now you may dismiss me, for my eyes have held the glory of the promised child. What a beautiful picture. So, so Zacharias holding his ch- son, perhaps, and he says, This is the horn of my salvation. Moving on, 72 to 75. In mercy. Notice he doesn't say, What do we know about Zechariah immediately? He is not part of the Pharisaical group. Because Zechariah understands God's mercy, not his merit. He doesn't say, because I have merited this. God has remembered his covenant because I have merited this. We have worked hard to please our God. He says, no, in God's mercy. God is merciful to remember his covenant. And moving on in 33, the oath he swore to Abraham. He's no Pharisee. Zechariah is saved. He understands the plan of salvation. God chose perfectly Elizabeth and Zachariah to be the father and the mother of the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. No pharisaical heart in this priest. And remember, he's a priest of God. He's studied the word of God. He's been in the word of God his entire life. He's an old man, too old to bear children. He knows the word of God. And he's, he's prophesying the word of God. He's preaching the word of God. And he knows it's all of mercy. God is merciful. It has nothing to do with our merit. Yes, I know I have many brothers, many brothers out there who are working their way into God's favor. But I've told them for years it won't work that way. It is all of God's mercy. It is God's grace, not our good works. It is God's mercy and never our merit. And to rescue and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness. This is the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic and the Abrahamic. Abraham came before, but in his order we have the two covenants. You see that? We'll keep moving. Exodus 2.24. Okay? This is, he's, he's remembering. Zechariah is remembering. God heard their groaning, right? They were in, in Egypt. They were in slavery and bondage 400 plus years. God heard, and then what's the key word? He remembered. What did he remember? His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered in God's mercy, not Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's merit, not the children of Israel who merited in Egypt. It was the mercy of God, remembering the promises that he made. That's true for you today. God's mercy, not your merit. We have a tendency in the, in the evangelical church today to be fully convinced we're saved by grace, but then we think we have to maintain our grace relationship through our good works. We have a tendency to believe that, and, and, and we all fall into that at times. 
we feel like we've had a really bad day or a bad week or maybe even for some of you a bad month, you feel like maybe you've lost God's favor. It doesn't work that way. You, you, you have separated yourself from God only because you've turned, not God. God said, I will never leave you, never forsake you. Once you're his, you are his forever, for eternity. It's a powerful understanding of what salvation really means. Why? God is, 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 is powerful, is omnipotent. This horn of salvation will not fail. Nothing will separate you ever from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. That's the promise of salvation. All right? So here's the groaning, and we have this exodus. But what does that exodus point toward? This was a physical exodus out of slavery and bondage to what? The Egyptians. But that wasn't the end of the story. That wasn't enough. Sure, they're freed from slavery and bondage, but they're not saved from sin and Satan and death. That was a physical picture of the spiritual that was to come. The greater exodus was to come. When they would tell the story of the exodus, generation after generation, it always pointed to a what? A greater exodus and a greater deliverer who would come. There's one coming who's greater than Moses, who will deliver us not from just the bondage from our enemies here in the physical world, but bondage from sin, Satan, and death. The world, the flesh, and the devil will be saved from that by the, the greater redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. These are all pictures. You know, we, we, when we're parents of little children, and you remember if you're older and you had little ones, and now you have grandchildren, and you read them the Bibles, and you... The pictures are always wonderful pictures because we learn through the pictures. God wrote the whole Bible in pictures. It's one picture after another picture if we'll see it that way. God gave us stories, as Dr. Richard Pratt wrote in a wonderful book. God gave us stories, and these stories tell us about one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Redeemer. So here, let's go to the New Covenant in 77 and 78, and we'll be very, very brief. And the only reason it's called New is because it's a new understanding of what was promised from old. Just take a look. To give us the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Listen to me. The only way that the Abrahamic covenant was going to be realized and the Davidic covenant was going to be realized was when sins were forgiven. Okay? These are sinners in need of a Savior. Every single person in the same situation. That's the whole point of understanding the, the, the covenant promises. Because of... Here it is again. Do you see the word? Because of... The mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come. So we'll deal with the covenant in a moment. What's the rising sun that will come to us from heaven? Go to Malachi 4.2. And then I'll give you a picture of it. A beautiful picture. Malachi 4.2. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. The thought which pictured the advent of the Messiah as a sunrise was a very popular picture of the Old Testament prophet. Why is that a popular picture in the Old Testament prophet's mind, the the sunrise? Well, if you remember how Jerusalem and the temple is situated, the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was on the move with God's people would always be set up so that the entrance faced east. Remember, we're living east of Eden, so we have to come from the east to go to the west to come into God's presence. So the tabernacle is facing east. Where does the sunrise? Yeah, no matter where you are, the sun still rises where? East. So now you have the beautiful temple in, 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 in Israel, in Jerusalem, this beautiful temple. In the beautiful temple, the entrance is facing east. You have the mountainous range in, in Israel, and you have the sun. Imagine the picture now. 
early morning, the, the priests are doing their work. The sun isn't up yet, and the sun's beginning to rise. And the sun begins to peak over the tops of the mountains. And the glory of the sun begins to fill what? All of Israel. That's the picture. That's the picture that's being painted for you. This is the glory of the true sun, the sun of righteousness, who is now being raised up for the, for the, for the salvation of his people. What a beautiful picture. And they're your pictures. These are yours, given to you. Given to you in promise from God. So that's what that means. And then verse 79, uh, let's be brief, to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let's just be real brief on the peace so that we can understand. I would think that most of you would be familiar with the fruit of, of the Spirit. You've heard of the fruit of the Spirit, and you're all familiar with those. Have you heard of the fruit of justification? There is fruit of justification, and there's much fruit, but the very first fruit is this, and it's the most important fruit. It's peace. It's shalom. It's the peace of God. It's reconciliation to God. What was the most important thing that was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? Their relationship with God. That was, and they were sent out of the garden, which is symbolic of what? What was the garden symbolic of? God's presence. They're sent out of God's presence. They're sent away from God. So now we're being told that what? This son of righteousness who is coming, he will guide our feet into the path of peace, the presence of God, reconciliation vertically with God again. This is the promise. This is the very first thing that's needed. We talk about peace on earth. That will never, ever happen. This doesn't happen first. That's the key. And then one day there will be peace on earth when the Lord comes back. And the Lord establishes his, his, his new heaven and new earthly kingdom. And all of that will come together. But the most important peace that we can have now is that we have been, we have been estranged from God. We have, we, have, we have been removed from his presence and that was the picture of the tabernacle coming in from the east. And the further you came west, you finally got to where? The Holy of Holies, the presence of God. The same with the temple. Now, who is the true tabernacle? Who is the true temple? The Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, John 1, 14. And he has come and took, took on flesh in tabernacles among us. The true tabernacle has come. And in relationship with him, you find peace now with God. That's the gospel. That's the promise. So it's a beautiful picture. So what's the first fruit of justification? Peace. Now let's take a look at the three covenants. And let's see if we can't unpack this and see if we can get a handle on them and then get ready to take a look at the birth of our Lord perhaps next week. Remember Mary? Mary in her Magnificat, she talked about God was remembering to be merciful to Abraham. Mary was also a theologian. What did we say? Here's a priest who's a theologian. Well, he should be. But how comforting was it to know this 13, perhaps 13, 12 or 13-year-old girl understands her theology as well? That should be a, instructive to all parents. Her, we don't know much about Mar, Mary's parents, do we? We know they trained her in the Scriptures. She was a student of the Scriptures. She understood the Scriptures. And she was able to surrender and submit to the Lord instantly in a very difficult set of circumstances because she knew who he was. So she talked about remembering the promise to Abraham. Now let's take a look. Ready? The Abrahamic covenant. Let's take a look. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your father's household to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. What are the three primary promises in the Abrahamic covenant? Land, people, and blessing. Okay? See that? That's the primary promise that was given to Abraham. Abraham was called by God to come out of his home country. Remember who Abraham was. He was a worshiper of false gods. You know that. He was a pagan. And he came from a pagan land and worshiped pagan deities. And yet God makes this promise to him to give him a land, to give him offspring, and to give him blessing. But he also says, you go down to verse 3, and I will bless you, and those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all, listen, all peoples on earth, their nationalistic fervor, Israel's nationalistic fervor, sometimes got in the way of their understanding of the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would be a father of all nations, not just one. So all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see it? You see the three promises? Okay, let's go to Davidic. <clears throat> and we don't have time to unpack. And, and, and know this, you could spend a lifetime studying the covenant promises, and there are far greater theologians than me who have done that. So I encourage you to read and to study. But I want to give you the framework and then show you the fulfillment. Davidic, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. What was primarily the Davidic covenant? Remember, David, Nathan comes to David and, uh, and confirms David's desire to build the temple. God steps into Nathan and says, no, 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 no. Solomon will build. But I'm going to give David a special covenant promise. His, his throne will be established forever. What is that called? That's called dominion. You understand? The throne is dominion. It's rule. It's dominion. So I want you to see the four things. We have dominion in the Davidic covenant. We have land in the Abrahamic covenant. We have offspring in the Abrahamic covenant. And we have blessing. Okay? You have those four things. Ready? Now we have the new covenant because none of that happens. None of that takes place. Unrepentant Israel is no different than unrepentant America today. You understand? None. Those who are out of Christ are out of salvation, are out of salvation promises. It's that simple. There's one way. There's one Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism. There's one way to salvation. Jesus said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father apart from me. That's it. Okay? Now, take a look at Jeremiah and the new covenant. This is the forgiveness of sins. This is the covenant I will make with the people. It wasn't new. It was a new understanding of what God had promised from the very beginning. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my law. Notice it doesn't say my new law. There's no new law. I will put my law, the same law. But now I will put my law on their minds and then I will write it on their hearts. Remember, here's the circumcision of the heart. Here's the circumcision. This is what takes John to the next level of circumcision. This was the picture of circumcision in the Old Testament that pointed to the ultimate circumcision of the heart that would take place. You weren't saved by circumcision. No more saved by baptism here with the water. No more saved by, by circumcision. It's the picture of the sign and the seal of the covenant. So here we see, I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive. Here it is. What do we need? What's the, mo- what, what's the number one thing that every person needs? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And what does Jesus say on the night he was betrayed? This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant for the forgiveness of sins. You know the four promises now? Don't miss this. If you're taking notes, write quickly. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Don't miss this. I want you to notice something before we read this. This is not a promise. This is a present prescription to Adam and Eve. Ready? So God created mankind in his own image. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over everything. What did we have before the fall? Look at the passage. We had the promise, but the promise was a prescription. 
And the prescription was what? Land. You see the land? Fill the earth. God gave him the earth. We had the promise of people. Be fruitful and multiply. We had the promise of blessing. God blessed them and said. And finally, we had the promise of what? Dominion. To subdue and to rule. The promise that God gave to Abraham was a promise that had already been fulfilled. The promise that we already had from the very beginning. It's what Adam lost. It's what, what we lost through Adam's fall and sin. And what God was doing was reestablishing. What's God giving back to us? What we once had. That's why when we preach the gospel, we have to go to the beginning and tell them the whole story. We had all of this. We had land. We had offspring. We had blessing. We had dominion. We had all of it. And God now is now establishing. What is he doing in these promises? He's saying you're going to get it back. You're going to get it back though through, through the Savior. Through the promised seed is how you're going to get it back. Ready? Genesis 3.15. You can't miss this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Do women have seed? We've talked about this many times. Of course not. Who's the seed? Well, if you're not sure, let's go to Galatians 3.16 and let's see who the seed is. These promises, the promises to Abraham, the promise for land and blessing, the promise for people, offspring, these promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, it's not plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person. And what does Paul do here now? Paul negates the nationalistic interpretation of Israel and says, no, there's a single seed, and that seed is Jesus. That all of the promises will be yes and amen through Jesus. All of them will come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Galatians 3, 26 and 29 and then we'll close. Ready? In Christ you are all children of God. Where? In Christ. You are all children of God through what? Faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have closed yourself with Christ. Now, notice what Paul does. Paul tells us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it doesn't make any difference who your father on this earth was. It only matters who your father in heaven is. And now he lays it out. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How do we close? Romans 9, 6 to 8. Watch how beautifully this just fits together. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Not everyone in the church is of the church. Not everyone in Israel is Israel. That's the promise that we know. We know it's not because you were born. Christian children born into a Christian home. Praise God. But that isn't what saves you. It's God's mercy and God's grace that he pours out. And he's pleased to save in the line of generations to be sure. But we have to understand what this word is teaching us. Not all who descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. 
It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Because we're going to get back to John the Baptist, let's just bring in one word from John this morning. There'll be much more coming. John in Matthew 3, 9, John the Baptist preparing the way, he says this to the Jewish people. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What they were basically saying, we are Abraham's children. We confess his creed, the creed, Deuteronomy, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So they confess the creed. They're the children of Israel. Therefore, we're God's children. No, they said, no. John said, no, no, no. doesn't work that way. And then Jesus, of course, confirms that. John chapter 8, the beautiful chapter 8. In John, in verse 39, what does Jesus say? They had just said, Abraham is our father. And how does Jesus counter? If you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. What were they doing at that time to Jesus? They were trying to put him to death. So Jesus says, if you were truly Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? Abraham believed in God. What does Jesus say later in that chapter? Abraham rejoiced at the coming of my day, and he saw it. Abraham saw the promise of the Messiah. Abraham knew that he would be saved because of the Messiah, not because of his physical descendancy and his, the nation he was in. He would be saved by God's grace through faith, by trusting in the promises of God. That's the truth. And how do we close? It can't get any better than this. And I want you to take this home with you today. This is not a name it and claim it sermon. But I want you to understand the power and the promises of God. And those promises are there for you. Those promises are yours. And I want you to know how you can count on those promises. Ready? 2 Corinthians 1.20. Here's the close. For no matter how many promises God made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Those who are watching by way of the internet, those who are here this morning, how are we saved? By trusting in Christ alone. It's that simple. You can't trust in your good works. You can't trust in your merit. You can't trust in your, your heritage and the family that you've been born into. You can't trust any of that. You trust in one thing alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ right now today is inviting you. And Jesus is saying to you, come. Come to me just the way you are. Come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I and I alone will give you rest. The true rest that you need. Rest from your self-salvation project. You cannot save yourself. But you come to me. You rest in me. You trust in me. And I alone will give you eternal life. Pray with me now, won't you? Father, we ask right now that if there's anyone in this place or anyone by way of the internet praying right now with us, would pray these words. Oh, God, I've heard the gospel today, and I understand it. I may not understand it all, but I understand enough of it. And I know that I am lost and beyond hope, save the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot work my way into your good graces. I cannot count on my heritage. I cannot trust in my church. I cannot trust in anything. So I transfer my trust this day to Christ alone. 
and I cry out to you, save me from my sins. I repent and I turn to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith. And Father, we pray, all of us who are in Christ, we pray that you would give them the confident assurance of this truth. He who began a good work will complete it. And until that day, etch upon our hearts that have been circumcised from the inside out, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand and continue to worship with us? i 